Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. This is Sarah Reeves from New Society Publishers. We are big fans of the Abundant Edge podcast. Oliver's guests talk about so many of the same topics that we publish on, and he talks with a lot of our authors too. We're proud to be a sponsor of this podcast that is doing such valuable work spreading the word about how to create a finer future together. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. If you're looking for solutions-oriented books, please visit our online store at newsociety.com, other online retailers, or visit a fine bookstore near you. Chelsea Green Publishing, an employee-owned company, is recognized as a leader in content about regenerative agriculture, organic farming, homesteading, local food, restorative living, and diet-focused integrative health. Publishing expert authors that bring in-depth practical knowledge to life with books, ebooks, and audiobooks. Go to ChelseaGreen.com and enter code EDGE30, that's capital E-D-G-E 30, at checkout to receive a special discount on your next print book purchase. And be sure to sign up for their newsletter and stay up to date on new releases and audiobooks. Chelsea Green Publishing, cultivating change from the ground up. In this interview, I had the pleasure of speaking with Daniel Christian Wall. Now, Daniel is an international consultant and educator specializing in biologically inspired whole system design and transformative innovation. Now, by the time he was 28, Daniel had traveled to 35 different countries on six continents, and he started his career as a marine biologist and scuba diving instructor before he had decided to focus on sustainability and sustainable communities. Now, originally trained at the University of Edinburgh and the University of California, Santa Cruz, Daniel also holds a master's degree in holistic science from Schumacher College and a PhD in natural design from the University of Dundee. Daniel has taught capacity building workshops on a wide range of sustainability issues to local authorities and businesses and has worked closely with Gaia Education since 2006 when he participated in the first training of trainers for the Eco Village Design Education Program. Daniel currently lives on Mallorca and works locally and internationally as a consultant, educator, and activist. And in 2016, he published his first book, Designing Regenerative Cultures. In today's session, we cover a very wide range of regenerative design theory, as well as Daniel's perspective and experience on community and cultural shifts, the factors of time in nuanced design, working in collaboration on multi-stakeholder projects, and much more. This interview is the perfect capstone for this last month's focus on design theory and regenerative community dynamics. So before I give it all away, I'll hand it over now to Daniel. Hey, Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks for inviting me. It's my pleasure. How's the weather in Mallorca? I would imagine your winters are pretty mild there. Mild, but you get spoiled. And then when it's a windy and not sunny day, you on the edge of complaining. But yeah, no, we, we are spoiled. It's, <laughs> it's a windy day today. And normally I go stand up paddling every day. And today it was just a bit too cold and choppy. To, ah, okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, we're spoiled here too. Uh, the winter time is our dry, sunny season. It's kind of the height of the tourist season. So I'm completely spoiled as well. I know how it is. <laughs> <laughs> so look, I've got a ton of questions to ask you and I've been really inspired by a lot of your work, your talks and some of the articles you've written to say nothing of the book. So what do you say we just jump right into the questions? Sounds good to me. All right, so could you talk a little bit first about how you began to pursue regenerative design and who are some of the mentors who've guided you along your journey? Um, I'll try to make this a relatively short version, but basically I, as a, as a, initially I studied biology and um, really out of a motivation a bit like the natural philosophers like, um, like Humboldt or Goethe were just curious about how, how life works. And then there came a point in that career where I realized that um, I could spend my entire time, uh, my entire life studying whales and dolphins and most likely they would go extinct within my children's lifetime and they would only know them out of books. So I kind of mm. at that point decided to work with my species in order to help other species. And um, to, to sort of speed it up a bit, I ended up doing a master's in holistic science at Schumacher College um, where I met John Todd and Nancy Jack Todd and, and David Orr. And they really turned me on to the power of design as um, the way that we can remake the human presence on earth and um, hopefully make it a healing one in terms of undoing the damage that we've been doing to the biosphere for many, many years. And uh, at the time, I was still working under the, the heading of ecological design, but pretty much with the same intentions of, of healing and regeneration. And I ended up doing a PhD with a wonderful man called Professor Seton Baxter at the University of Dundee. Um, he had a little postgraduate research unit called the St Center for the Study of Natural Design. And, and my, my 2006 PhD thesis was on design for human and planetary health, a holistic integral approach to complexity and sustainability. And, and while I wasn't really using the word regenerative back then, it, it really is, um, to my mind, uh, a, an early work on, on regenerative design and planetary health. Um, and then over the 10, 15 years that, that came afterwards, I've been working with the United Nations Institute of Training and Research and with um, the Global Eco-Village Network and Guy Education and Pioneers and the International Futures Forum and lots of different outfits that, that basically care about the future and try to create a more viable, thriving future for um, this generation, but also the, the generations yet to come. And uh, in 2016, I wrote my book, Designing Regenerative Cultures. And it's around that time, a couple of years before that, that I came across Bill Reed and Pamela Mang and, and the work of the Regenesis Group. And um, when I first saw that graphic that is also in my book, it shows that spectrum from business as usual to green to sustainable to restorative and then on to regenerative. It was like a light went on and I kind of said, ah, now it all makes sense. And, um, and also having had a lot of contact with people um, in the regenerative agriculture movement particularly, it, it just seemed to me back then and when I wrote my book, 2014, 2015, uh, that regenerative was the meme that was so much more powerful than than the word sustainability and in many ways i've been proven right because since my book came out it's it seems like everything 
has gone like like in, in, in so many different areas. People are working now on regenerative economics, regenerative bioregional development, regenerative de design, and so on. And um, I have high hopes that this is the beginning of what I call the regeneration rising, um, the, the the last minute um, transformative response of humanity to the crisis we're facing, and uh, the last chance to create a viable future for our species on this planet. That's a wonderful explanation. And what it prompts me to ask now is, what is your own personal definition of regenerative design? Because I recently got uh, Bill Reed from Regenesis Group's definition on that, and that was very eye-opening for me as well. Um, and what is the difference between that and sustainability to you? Well, I would say, and I mean, I... I work with Bill. I like Bill a lot. And, and um, I think we overall ideologically agree completely. But when it comes down to, to sort of use of language and so sometimes we might use different um, wordings. But for me, there are lots of people, and this really has to be stressed, there are lots of people who've been working in the field of sustainability from a regenerative stance and with a regenerative salutogenic intention. Um, but in the way that, that Bill likes to describe it, um, and I, I think it's useful to basically say that sustainable is the point at which we don't add any more damage to the system, where what we're doing right now is um, not degrading the resource base and not damaging ecosystems or um, eroding social fabric or, econ or, or, or destroying local economies. Um, but since we've done so much damage in all these areas over the last 50, 250, with the start of agriculture, even 5,000 years, uh, not doing any more damage isn't enough. We need to undo the damage that we have done over all those centuries. And that moves you then into restorative practice but restorative practice, when done with the hubris of a kind of human engineer um, coming in and redesigning entire ecosystems on, on a um, GIS system and then, and, and then implementing that design, um, it can still be done in a mindset that is um, separating humanity and nature. And only when we put humanity really back into the system and understand that as biological beings, we're fundamentally interconnected with the wider community of life upon which we depend for our survival. Then we begin to, rather than design learning from nature, we begin to try to design as nature. And that is both enormously humbling and somewhat audacious because what we really have to do is to redesign the human presence on earth in time to reverse climate change within the century and um, restore healthy ecosystems functions within the, over the next three decades. And so as a definition of what would I call a regenerative culture, it's a culture that um, tries wherever possible to increase the capacity of the people within it to respond to an uncertain future in ways that are adaptive to the changes that will come at us and to do so in ways that are restoring and regenerating the healthy ecosystems functions of the ecosystems upon which we depend, but also restoring and regenerating the social fabric and social cohesion of our communities 
so we are able to collaborate more effectively in responding to these changes. So it's, it's all about capacity to respond. It's about manifesting our potential to be a healing and regenerating impact on the environments in which we live and upon which we depend. That's a marvelous answer. And I want to unpack some of those <laughs> very complex things that you, that you breezed over there. And one, let's start with the idea of designing nature as nature rather than apart from it. What sort of mindset shift does that require? And what perspective needs to be cultivated in order for us to think as a part of the systems that we're designing? Well, um, the reality is that we've never been anything but nature. Um, the, the quickest way to find out if that statement is true is to invite you to not breathe for the next nine minutes. And if, if you're still there at the end of that, um, then I'd be surprised because you're a biological being with a metabolism depending on oxygen and, and um, food and all sorts of things that are moving through your system. And um, so as being primarily biologically, uh, biological beings, we have somehow over the last, particularly since the scientific revolution, but even before that, have started to tell a story that has, has believed that culture somehow emancipated itself from the more, more than human world and that it is now somewhat separate from nature. And we speak of nature as other. Um, and that's why I like to, like, I, I deeply respect the wonderful work that Janine Banyas and all the people working in the biomimicry field doing and I, I actually helped together with a um, group of colleagues here in, in Spain and Portugal to launch the Iberian network for biomimicry but um, what I've noticed is that in the language use is there's still this this intent to let's learn from nature and copy it to adapt it to our human designs and and I think we have to be really careful of, of this kind of language use because it it perpetuates this false dualism and once we really truly understand ourselves as parts of the ecosystem or participants in the ecosystems um, that, that surround us and participants within this transforming process that is the biosphere, that is life as a planetary process, then um, we will design in a completely different way because we will stop designing in these kind of siloed ways of just looking at product design because um, we actually need to, or, or architecture, or the different scales of the design. Because everything is interconnected in this transforming complex dynamic system that, that we participate in, we need to always pay attention to all the scales that whatever design we're working on sits in. So when you work at the scale of product design, you need to ask yourself, how does this product sit in a building? And so, so for example, if you have a passive house, wonderful um, eco-building with all eco-materials and, 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 and no off-gassing, if you then fill it with products that are made from toxic plastics and are off-gassing these into the environment, then you still have health effects. So um, it's this, this idea that really paying attention to the complexity that we're facing and, and, and stopping this short-sighted piecemeal approach that most designers still have today. 
And with all of that challenge of uh, complexity in the world that we live in and the choices that we have to constantly confront, how do we start to educate um, not only this generation, but the younger generation to think in these levels of complexity or to simplize it so that you can make more informed decisions on a day-to-day basis? That's um, the million-dollar question. I think, <laughs> I think education is key. Um, sometimes it can feel like education is too slow, but um, education has the potential of shifting the, the worldview and the value system that drives um, ultimately what our intentions, what our real and perceived needs are, and, and therefore drives our behavior and how we design what we design and, and all that. So um, the, the, most, the, the highest leverage point of, of interfering in a system is at that level of shifting worldviews and value system or even inviting people into being able to hold multiple perspectives at the same time, even if they seem somewhat contradictory, and let themselves be informed by these multiple perspectives. Because one of the stories we've got at the moment is that if I'm right then you, and you have a different opinion, you must be wrong. And um, that might, in this complexity, not, not be true. Um, really, we need to look at our participation in this process from a number of angles and be informed by different ways of knowing. Um, yeah. Uh, can you repeat your question again? Because I think I, I sort of veered off a little bit. No, no, that's fine. We were just talking about how you might be able to educate other generations to think uh, through the complexity of these things when it really hasn't been focused on in, in most countries. Educational well, well, systems. I can't speak to all of them. Some, something, some examples that come to mind is, is um, um, Gunther Pauli, the author of The, the, the Blue Economy and um, founder of the Zero Emissions Research Initiative. He, he, quite a few years ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago, wrote a series of fables, which are called Gunther's Fables. And they basically are all about um, environmental ethics, dynamic systems thinking, the interconnectedness of ecosystems. And they're all written in simple language, five-minute fables that you can read to your children at bedtime. And um, they come with a little study guide. So, so you can use these fables uh, at different ages. And, and every time you repeat them, to, to your children, they, they have another dimension or another level, a layer of depth to, to teach these, this kind of ecological systems view of life. So that, that would be one thing. Then, then Linda Booth Sweeney, um, who wrote this wonderful book, which, which any teacher or facilitator should have a look at, called um, The Systems Thinking Playbook, um, has in the, in the recent years also started to, to write children's stories. And I think we need much more, that, more of that. And for me, that's, that's a topic close to home because I've um, become a father 18 months ago. And, and now that I look into my 18-month-old daughter's eyes, um, I really wonder what kind of education system can I uh, submit her to that, that she doesn't... Um, learn this separation from nature and that she actually much more deeply feels her interconnectedness with with the world at large and and of course and then it, it continues because education is is, is lifelong learning we need we need to um get into the schools we need to get into the universities i've worked a lot with universities i've designed master's programs um for, for a number of different universities um set up the first the world's first masters in sustainable community design with harriet watt university 
and and Fintorn College, um, and college based in an eco village in Scotland, and um, and then for the last ever since 2007, I've been involved with Gaia Education and worked with them off and on. And for the last five years, I've been working with them more closely, writing curriculum for them, and and they basically offer. Uh, a number of different modalities, 125-hour residential course and and 400-hour online courses and a number of other programs that train people in design for sustainability or train people in sustainable community design. Now, with this increased perspective of looking at the world as nature rather than apart from it, let's talk a little bit about the community design that you've touched on, especially this being the main subject of your book, how do we start to design communities that are in harmony with nature and actually work to regenerate the systems in which they interact? Um, little correction, my, my book's called Designing Regenerative Cultures and community is one of those scales. Um, Sorry, my a, mistake. No, no, that's okay. It's, it's, it's a very important scale, but um, it, it kind of prompts me to say that I actually spent 10, 12 years very much focused on the community scale. Um, as I mentioned before, working with the Global Eco-Village Network, with, working with Guy Education, which is an educational charity that grew out of the Global Eco-Village Network and, and, and runs a course called Eco-Village Design Education. Um, all, so, so I was very focused on how do we put the pieces of the puzzle of sustainability and, and regenerative development into place at the scale of a community. And what I actually realized doing that and also um, being quite involved with the, 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 the sort of first wave of the transition town movement, helping to set up transition town in, in forests in Scotland and giving talks in Germany about transition town when nobody else was doing that yet. Um, I, I kind of realized that at the scale of communities, on the one hand, that's where people have a face, that's where they have the story that connects them to their place and to the history of that place and is a, is a key um, scale at which we actualize patterns of sustainable or regenerative behavior. But it's not enough in terms of from, from a whole systems design perspective to really integrate all the needs of um, a human population in, in a benign way into the ecosystems they inhabit. You really need collaboration between multiple communities at the bioregional scale. Um, I think that, that, that the scale of the region is the scale at which we can redesign the human impact on Earth to not be based on artificial borders that were drawn by a ruler of some kind of empire or colonialist, um, but we actually draw the borders again based on uh, aquifers and watersheds and natural patterns. And, and that's really what the, the promise of the, the bioregional design develop or bioregional development approach is, um, which is not to, to diminish the importance of, of community design. So within those types of shifts of structures, how can we start to collaborate at a much more advanced level, especially on sort of multi-stakeholder projects? And I'm asking this from a personal perspective, as I happen to be as a part of a company and a group that's working on land-based projects here in Guatemala. I just didn't realize when getting into it how complex and difficult the inter interpersonal relationships and coming to consensus and all of these other uh, essential parts of collaboration were 
And having studied these through the Eco Village Network and the communities that you've been a part of, what have been some of the insights or the advice that you would give someone going into a multi-stakeholder project? Um, be patient, go for it in the long, long run. Um, the, the, the path is the goal. Like if you, if you, if you have a clear idea of where you want to be in two years time, you're most likely going to get really frustrated. You're absolutely right. It's, it's a really tricky process. It's, it's much easier when you work at the scale of an intentional community in eco village where it's still very complex, but at least you've got a whole bunch of people who say, we want to live in a different way and we want to create a sustainable system. Let's try to do that together. And then the problems start. But when, when you're in the real world and you work with, like I have done for the last eight years here on the island of Mallorca, I actually moved to Mallorca because at least there's one positive thing about islands as models for bioregions, you can't have an argument about the borders of the bioregion. They're defined by, by the water, by the beach. Mm. And, and, um, and, but I, I completely agree with you. It, it is so complex and you, you basically deal with the clash of worldviews. You deal with people who are mainly in the mindset that um, whatever the amount of money you've made in your life is your measurement of performance so you you must be more intelligent more successful and better if you if you're wealthier and of course that's not always the case or actually very rarely the case and um then working with universities you run into the the bureaucratic like while they should be the lighthouses for for a bioregional culture of of inspiration and and and, and um, data and information management and knowledge knowledge um, provision they're very often um, somewhat stuck ivory towers where any project that is inviting multi-stakeholder collaboration can easily be seen as a challenge to established power structures in, in universities. And then local government, the same thing. You, you, you might be just about to make an inroad with your local government on local and bioregional planning, and then suddenly there's a political change. And since we have these very short-term election cycles of four years, uh, sometimes the whole work that you've done with a stakeholder process over three, four years can be washed down the drain when, when another party comes into power and says, well, they started mm -hmm. that project, so let's stop it now. Um, so Just on principle, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so, so um, not wanting to sound terribly uh, frustrated and, and like a wet blanket on that, I, I still absolutely believe we need these multi-stakeholder platforms. And for, for, for me, one way of working in that space is to invite everybody, not just one party, but all the parties, not just the universities, but the universities and the schools and, 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 and local NGOs, um, invite as diverse a group of res representatives as possible to get involved in a future state visioning process that really asks, where do we want to be in X amount of time in the future? And then create that image as clear as possible and then start backcasting from that. And this is, for example, where the Regenesis approach would be slightly different from mine. Um, Regenesis is very focused, like Bill Reed and, and, and um, Pamela Mang and, and Ben Haggard are very much about drawing the story of place out of the location. And I think that's also hugely important and it can inform such a visioning process, but it's, 
um, to me, it's 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 a both and, not neither or. So in a similar way as as I would say that giving people a quick introduction to case studies and and like first to the map, the complex map of what needs to be integrated to create a whole systems design that that has a higher chance of being regenerative and sustainable helps uh, because I find that basically if if you make it only a process of drawing out of the local population in place their story of place and their vision of place, what you will get is def defined by the education and um, the, the, the the cultural process of the last 30, 40 years in that place. Um, and that might mean that people have never had the vision of that other ways of living are possible. Some Some places are too disconnected from the indigenous wisdom of the past where people still lived in place with the wisdom that came from that place and have basically been been eroded in terms of what they even hold possible. So for, for me, it's about education, it's about visioning, it's about carefully listening to the story of place and bringing, weaving all of that together. Um, yeah, I, I could go on, but I'll leave it there. Certainly. Well, let me see if I if I can kind of summarize this quickly, just almost from my own understanding. The uh, it's hard to under underestimate how necessary it is to find the narrative of a place when you start uh, any sort of project or initiative, or even before you get to that stage, by identifying the the stories and the identity that the people and the place sort of identify with, and using that as a way of unifying the the collective but also then stepping ahead and finding a new narrative as to the full potential of what that collective can be and where it can go and how it can interact with the system and when those two things are identified and perhaps the um the agreeing party sort of come to a consensus you th you see that as the the main way forward and getting people onto the same page or same narrative or same goal uh, in order to facilitate cooperation? Um, almost, yes. Although I, I'm not so sure about the word con consensus. It's almost like that the most powerful thing you can do in a multi-stakeholder process is to get people to a level of understanding of complexity and the unpredictability of the big system they participate in, that they begin to value the diversity of opinion. They begin to value disagreeing more intelligently. Um, and mm. if, if, if you can get an overall overarching consensus where you can say, say, this is the higher ground where we can meet. We have different political opinions. We have different ways we tell the story of the past in some cases, particularly here in Spain, that's that's very prevalent. Um, but we actually share a common vision of the kind of world our children, we would like our children to grow up in. And we share an understanding of the urgency of the imminent climate chaos that, that we're now running towards, that we know that we don't have an option anymore. We need to find ways to collaborate in all our diversity with all our disagreements and find that higher ground of, and this, this is where I think regeneration is so po uh, po um, powerful and, and positive because anybody would understand that 
by regenerating the resource capacity and the, in the, like the resource basis and the capacity of people in place, you can only increase your chances in a turbulent and uncertain future. And even if we just get to that point, we're already beginning to move in the right direction. Hmm. I really agree with that. That's uh, that's a very good way of explaining it. And my next question kind of comes from some questions that I've begun to ask in my own design process for our own projects and those for clients. And that is, what part of the, the problem am I? And to elaborate on that, it would be, especially in multi-stakeholder projects, what part of the communication breakdown am I responsible for and what responsibility for its facilitation can I take on? Because, you know, like you mentioned earlier, the complexity of all of these different personalities, power structures, uh, differences of opinion and ideology can be very difficult to navigate. So how can you make sure or take steps to ensure that you are not part of the problem or that you are facilitating the communication and the cooperation of the parties involved? Also, also a hugely important question. And um, it reminds me of a, of a kind of uh, saying that, that gets repeated a lot in, in the International Futures Forum, um, which goes that the quality and effectiveness of the intervention depends on the inner state of being or quality of being of the intervener. And um, that's another way of saying that, like, again, in the, the, the regenerative development language of the Genesis group, it would mean that the begin, the, the, the first level of work is working at your own personal development and working to be able to sit in the fire in these processes um, to try to not get triggered, to try to be constantly aware of this, observing your own locus of attention, your own um, uh, way of making meaning and telling a story so, so you can be most transparent when you facilitate about where you might be bringing in a bias because you have an opinion too and you're part of that system, but at the same time giving space for other people to voice their strong opinions as well. So it's, it's um, I think it's a lifelong process and I've seen these kind of processes depend enormously on the quality of the facilitation that um, that holds the process and the level of trust and buy-in from from these different uh, stakeholder groups towards the team that is convening, um, and it and it's a, it's a tough job. Like um, it, it, like I, I like to call it weaving or the the role of the the systems weaver. Um, when when you're a bridge builder or weaver, bringing together these very diverse stakeholder groups you often find yourself in using slightly, when you're only with one group, you use slightly different language that is, is more akin to their language and their framing of the world. And then you, but you also try to make them understand the value in all the other constituents in, in the multi-stakeholder system. And so to some extent, what, what that means is that you, you you leave yourself open as the weaver and the bridge builder and the, the meta network weaver to be shot at from both sides of the bridge because um, it's, it's very easy 
for anybody in different constituencies that are still in the habit of creating an other as oppo opponents or being opposed to, to um, misidentify the bridge builder or the weaver as just one of the from the other side of the bridge. And um, it's it's an art form, and it's it's a continued personal development process that never stops. Indeed, yeah. And I find that one of the other aspects of design that we as humans tend, not always, but tend to be kind of poor at, is the element of time. Mm -hmm. So how can you think long-term when designing? How can you make accurate predictions of how a design in a community might evolve, or in some cases allow for space and flexibility in the design to take into account the unforeseen? Um. Yeah, when, when I speak of this, this notion of scale linking design, I mean both temporally and spatially scale linking. So the, mm. the, the, the spatial is to always be aware of how the scale of even green chemistry and the materials we use, the scale of products, communities, architecture, um, industrial ecology, bioregional planning, and, 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 and more international scales are all interlinked. And in a similar way, um, Short cycles, midterm cycles, and long-term cycles in nature are also fundamentally interlinked. The, the whole work of the Resilience Alliance and Stockholm Resilience Center, if you've ever seen this panarchy cycle um, and the adaptive loop, it, it, it's basically change processes sitting within change processes. And the, the bigger the processes, when they come at the level of ecosystems or entire biomes or even the entire biosphere, these these cycles run much slower and the closer you get to the, the smaller the place gets of the local community or the bioregion, it, it, it becomes a little faster. And so um, the long-term design approach is to just be aware of these changing, like the, the, the different change dynamics at different scales interacting. But it's also being aware that our interventions will always be temporary and imperfect that we just keep having to adapt one of, one of the key insights at an early point of trying to write my book was this moment when i realized that wait a minute what can i actually put in this book that isn't going to be obsolete in 10 or 20 years time mm. and i i began to realize that more often than not yesterday's solutions have turned into today's problems even if this very often yeah even if the solutions are offered with the best of intentions. So, so even you and I trying to do positive work at the bioregional scale in our communities, how can we be sure that what we're proposing isn't also somewhat biased and a limited perspective and will lead to unintended consequences in the future and therefore will, reneed, will, will require future course corrections? And I guess once we have that humility, we begin to pay more attention to asking the right questions and take answers as transitory means to get to best, better questions rather than questions as transitory means to get to answers that are final because very few answers are final. And, um, also, and yeah, so, so basically just keep being adapt adaptive is the short answer. Well, then tell me some of the questions that have helped you to gain perspective and start to design in a way that is perhaps more compassionate and takes in the perspective of as many other people and possibly even life forms as, as you can accommodate. 
Well, it is some of this, um, I mean, this is what we, we find that the more we go into exploring what are the questions that would create a regenerative culture, um, I think many of the questions are questions that humanity has asked for, for millennia when we were still living um, bioregionally in tribal communities that were often nomadic and were moving through the landscape. Um, and so this wonderful and somewhat overquoted question of the Iroquois Federation in North America, where they basically had this rule to ask themselves, how would our decision today affect the seventh unborn generation of the future? Mm. That's, a, that's a powerful question. Um, or the question that I learned from the famous ecological design architect, William McDonough, at a, at a conference in Barcelona um, by now 15 years ago, he asked the question of how can anything that creates ugliness and ill health and discomfort to people elsewhere be truly beautiful? Right, so, right. So this, this concept of total beauty to like the again um, the the Native American um, wisdom has this advice to people as like if you walk into the future walk in beauty. Um, beauty is a, is 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 a wonderful feedback mechanism. Um, a lot of boat de designers I know say they never. Or Buckminster Fuller said something similar. When I design, I never think about be beauty. But when I've, I'm finished with the design and it's not beautiful, I know that it's not right. Yeah, those are very good metrics to look at. You still there? Yeah, still there. Okay, sorry. Uh, I think yeah. we started to <laughs> glitch a little bit with the internet connection. Um, so within these terms of scale, let's talk a little bit about how you can plan at the stages of local, bioregional, and all the way up to global economies, um, especially when... <laughs> maybe not having direct access or reach to some of those larger scales. Well, I love this word that has sort of emerged over the last few years, global. I first came across it when I ran a consultancy research project for Ecover here on Mallorca, and we called it Ecover Glocal, which was basically this idea of whether they could use waste streams on Mallorca to create detergents and cleaning products on Mallorca from waste products and then and, 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 and basically use them for the local market. And um, in this particular case study, we were positioning Ecover as a knowledge holder that is global, that is working in 40 countries around the world, that has 35 years of experience in how to create ecological detergents, but then they would collaborate at the local level with um, the local chemical industry to actually produce the products. And for, for me, this because everything is interconnected, all our interventions at any scale do affect the whole system. And the, the larger planetary response to the current climate crisis and the increasing uncertainties and increasing potential for disruptive um, processes at multiple scales from local to, to bioregional 
invite us it's it's actually one and the same response like if if we try to prepare for climate chaos we need to increase local resilience and um, shorten supply lines and create redundancy in this in the system move towards renewable energy um, decentralized systems that that are not so easily disrupted but if we if we do all that and if we do it right um, restoring local soils local watersheds reforesting local forests then we're actually affecting the planetary scale so um, in many ways working locally means to work locally and bioregionally in global collaboration and knowledge exchange and to trust in the the pattern of emergence that if enough people in enough places begin this local and bioregional regenerative development process then what will emerge out of it is a diverse kaleidoscope of different bioregional regenerative cultures and they, they'll be different because they'll be adapted to the, the the biocultural uniqueness of the places and the bioregions they inhabit but this will be enabled by global collaboration and, and so solidarity um, and i think that's the the kind of maturation process that our species is now called to to make that we that we have to understand that the time of them and us thinking is over that nation states are an anachronism that has no real place certainly not in the 20, 22nd century that we need to um, become one species humbly united in creating conditions conducive to life and that we do so best at the bioregional scale and that means open innovation open knowledge exchange peer-to-peer -peer collaboration and all those things that are already being developed um, it means re-empowering a way of working with the global commons, um, deprivatizing a lot of things that should have ne never been privatized. Um, and all of that need needs activism at local, bioregion, national and international scale. It's, um, yeah, it needs, needs all of us and it needs work at, at all scales at, the, at one and the same time. Mm, that is very beautifully and articulately <laughs> explained. I really appreciate that now. Let's take a couple of steps back and before actually enacting some of these projects, it, it requires a lot of thinking and a lot of, um, uh, like you said, humility too, before actually uh, implementing or moving forward with these things. So my question would be, what are some of the essential design criteria that you research before starting a project? Hmm. The one, the one thing I, I think that's, it's an interesting question because now you're pushing me into an area where there's a lot of tacit knowledge, but I've mm. actually not necessarily made it explicit under this kind of heading of design criteria. But um, basically, a lot of it has to do with, with mapping the opportunities and the challenges of the place and the bioregion I work in. So right. um, it is the, the same process as, as um, a la, a la Regenesis um, of, of looking deeply into the story of place. Um, Transition Town had the same impulse of, of kind of asking the elders, talking to people who, who know um, the longer climate patterns, which areas flood, um, how often kind of the bigger cycles of droughts 
come around, um, but also the, this data is available on, on multi-layer GIS maps in some university vaults that you just have to somehow find the right academic to give you access to. Um, mm. But it's also looking at um, what is the current economic fabric, but also what was the past economic fabric. Very, very often we can learn from sort of what a place was like in the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, when, when basically places were still more bioregionally focused on um, their local strengths, so to speak. And, and from, from all that, to, to basically construct a, uh, a, an image of what you're working with, that then also makes you realize where the the ill health, where the, the healing needs to take place, where where development over the last 100, 150 years has created severe damage and, and how to undo that damage. And so so the, the the bigger meta question is does it does it create conditions conducive to life? I think Janine Benyus really nailed it with this wonderful sort of summary statement of of biomimicry, life creates conditions conducive to life. How how do we how do we do that in a way that it is good for our species, but also all the other species we co-inhabit our bioregion with? I'm not sure whether that answers your question. It does, and it gives you a really good framework to start from. Uh, I like that you mentioned talking to people who are connected more with the way things used to be, and as useful as finding the detailed mapping data and uh, conditions or, or I guess criteria that you can use as a, as a baseline, there is something to be gained from getting someone's perspective on it as well. The stories that come along with the, how the things used to be, not just the data itself. Absolutely. Now, and, and very often it's the elders. It's, it's like, for example, so many in, in, the, in the UK now, there's, there's a lot of trouble with um, flooding. And um, mm. it's because so many housing developments have been built in floodplains. So many. <laughs> if, if somebody had bothered to just sit down and ask a local shepherd, what do you think about this new development? They would have said in a very strong accent, um, well, I wouldn't be building there. Um, because that meadow floods every ten years, um, and right. so so it's it's these these um, unique individual perspectives that have built up uh, people that built up over thirty forty years of living with and in the landscape that that you need to find ways of searching out or even looking at old images. Like I've I've just come across a wonderful book of of Mallorca. With, with sort of before and after images of basically images taken in the 1910s, 1920s and, and what the exact place taken from, like, taken from the same angle looks, looks like today. And mm. for, unfortunately, it's, uh, it's quite jarring what we've, what we've done to this beautiful island. Now, we've been talking a lot at this point about the theory behind regenerative design uh, community and cultural shifts. Can you talk about some of the examples that you've seen in your own travels and your own networking with other influential designers of communities, bioregions that are beginning to make the shift or have made shifts in certain ways towards this ideal that we're pursuing? Um, well, 
one wonderful network that that really um, I think is is going to find a new strength in the next few years is the the, the global eco village network and all these um, communities they they connect whether it's the experiment uh, experimental communities that were set up in the 60s and 70s like Finthorn and Oroville and the farm and many others um, but also the this the powerful way that the Global Eco Village Network has worked with indigenous uh, leaders in countries that 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 are not part of the the uh, highly developed world, um, and have given them back a new appreciation of their way of being, of of not falling for this insidious development um, conversation of you are underdeveloped, these are highly developed countries and and to actually appreciate that very often indigenous place-based ways of living hold a kind of wisdom that the global north is trying to get back to and and jen has done this effectively for example senegal has a rural development strategy that is basically built on eco-village development and similar mm -hmm. things are happening in parts of india and in other par parts of southeast asia and um, it's also gaining strength in, in, in Latin America. Um, but then there's, there's other projects like, for, for example, Judy Wicks um, grew out of that just a small neighborhood cafe, the White Dog Cafe. She, she grew this wonderful network in Philadelphia called Bali, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, which give a wonderful example of how to um, retrofit and rebuild and re-energize re the um, local business and community fabric in a region in a way that increases the resilience of the, uh, that place and, and, and also gives people more meaning and more human connections. And, mm. um, and then there, there are a number of cities that, that, that have done pioneering work um, in, in, in kind of a more bioregionally focused urban development approach, um, Curitiba in Brazil, Melbourne in Australia. But um, the, the thing is that because this is a journey and not a, a final destination, none of these places are perfect. Um, but from all of these places, we can learn um, elements of what might work. And that, again, that, that's a nuance where, where I, again, I'm, I'm a little bit different in my orientation from, from the Regenesis approach. They, they tend to not like case studies um, and, and examples because um, there's then that tendency of a sort of cookie cutter, cut and paste replication of something that worked somewhere else in a new place, which hardly ever works. And so that's why staying with the story of place and drawing something new out of the essence of that place and the potential that comes from the capacity of the people and the essence of the place um, is, is it's it's a wonderful frame and it's use, useful and, and and helpful but i i often think giving people examples of different ways of doing things and say well just try it on for size explore how you would make this relevant to your local culture and your local uniqueness of place and and if you find that it doesn't work, then then don't use it. Or if you find you need to completely redesign it or change it, do so. But it still helps to to highlight these um, best practice and best process examples. And and in my book, I I name an, a number of them. Um, there might be like two 
might take too too long to run through a lot of them right now. No, I understand. No, I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, I think a lot of inspiration can come from these examples, case studies, and success stories that that you mentioned. But absolutely as well that if if you use them as okay, well, this worked here. Let's try and implement the same thing. You miss a lot of the nuances and the differences in the context of where you're working, not only within the culture but the bioregion, the species. And, uh, you know, even microclimates, especially since I tend to work a lot more with individual clients on buildings and smaller scale permaculture designs, microclimates can play a huge role in that too, to say nothing of the history of a place as well. So um, before I let you go, I've got one main question left that I would love your perspective on. And that is, why do you do this work? What is it that motivates you and gives you hope that some real change can be made? Um, well, I, well, on the, on the one hand, it's, it just gives me an enormous amount of meaning. It, it puts me into a framework of, uh, I've, I, I used to say to people that I work in, I earn in two economies. Um, I earn in the economy of money and I earn in the economy of meaning. And for many years in the economy of money, I just about made it to the end of the months and my coasting horizon of, um, being able to pay rent without income was maybe three months or six months. Mm. Um, but, but the economy of meaning, I, in the economy of meaning, I feel like I've been Bill Gates for many, many years. Um, mm. I just feel richly rewarded by this wonderful network of, of friends, collaborators, and, and mentors, particularly mentors. I've been, I've been very blessed to have learned um, from some of the, the real pioneers in, in all these fields that are, are now flowing together and um so i i do this work for future generations for um because it, but also f like the, again the indigenous practice is to ask with everything you decide about what you want to do with your life does it serve yourself does it serve your community and does it serve the planet and for many years i found it really hard to ask the first of those questions because I was very focused on does it serve the planet? Does it serve life? Does it serve the community? But I felt that there was something wrong with asking does it serve me? And uh, I kind of learned the hard way that um, if you want to want this to be um, a marathon and not a horse race, if you want this to be something that works over the long term, you, you have to basically also nourish and, and, and support yourself because from that basis you can then effectively nourish and support your community or the wider community of life. And, and for me, this, it's, it's just been something that I sort of grew into over the last 20 years that more and more I um, feel excited about serving this transition, what I, what I call the regeneration rising, this, this planetary response. And, and, in many ways, since I've written, I've written my book, which is really when I started to make public some of the writing that I've done and some of the thinking that I've done for the last 20 years, um, a lot of the stuff that I now put out on my Medium blog, I'm, like right now I'm, I'm putting out a lot of articles that I wrote in Spanish in 2003, 2004, 2005. But when I reread them, I would have, I, I would change nuances and, and in framing and, and language use, but um, the, the, the underlying intention and the information is still absolutely valid. And, and I learned from my, my mentor, 
Brian Goodwin at, at Schumacher College, who is one of the co-founders of the Santa Fe Institute of um, Complexity Science, um, that if you want to affect positive emergence in a complex dynamic system that you can't predict and control, the one thing that you can do is design for positive emergence. You can you can you you can't force the system to turn out in a certain way, but if you connect the right actors in the system with each other and you pay attention to the qualities of the relationships between them and you pay attention to the quality of information that flows to them and in the system, then the likelihood that what will emerge as an emergent property from this system to be positive and life-supporting and healthy and collaborative increases. And so my my work in social media and, and on, on, on Facebook, Twitter, and all these, these different channels is really spreading what I would call information that increases the likelihood for positive emergence. Um, it's trusting that, that it can actually make a difference. And, and it seems to be making a difference. There's, there, there seems to be a real, and I'm not taking it on my shoulders, but somehow in the last 20, two years, three years, I feel like that, that there's a quickening, that more and more people are realizing that um, it's 20 past 12 and, and we should have acted a long time ago and, and we're mm. still only talking about it. And and that now is the time to really um, come together and and um, like to some extent it's the last stance of our species. It's like it's it's a species level rite of passage. We were were asked to either become mature members in the community of life or bow out, center stage left, and say, okay, it was fun while it lasted, digging up carbon and and um, putting it in, into the atmosphere. I really love two things that you mentioned there because they resonate a lot with my experience as well. And that was, first of all, being paid into economies and that there are many different ways to um, come out with, uh, I'm trying to think of the word I always speak in Spanish, a ganancia or a, a profit. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, a profit for your efforts and for your time spent is not only uh, something that comes back to you in money. And it's something I've been working on a lot in my own journey as well. But then you followed it up by saying that you've learned to sort of take care of yourself. And in the longer vision, if, if, you know, if you're burned out or if you don't have the resources and you're, especially if you're coming from a mentality of scarcity or a mindset of scarcity, I know in my own experience has caused me to make a lot of decisions either uh, in the very short term or in a reactionary mode that has compromised sort of the longer term thinking that I've tried to cultivate. And sort of reminding people that taking care of yourself is an integral part of being effective at the community and the global level is something that I think, especially a lot of my friends and other people that I've connected with, could stand to hear a few more times because, you know, dying on the cross of activism <laughs> yes. is, 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 is far too common. And, and, and people's uh, best intentions uh, really start to fall apart when you make these decisions from a reactive mindset, when you come from a perspective of scarcity, when you don't have your own uh, priority set that, that can allow you to live in the abundance that you're trying to seek for others. And I, th I find it very powerful that you mentioned that as well. Yeah, no, I think it is hugely important and it, it very much comes out of, of 
personal experience over the last 20 years of trying yeah, to myself work as well. <laughs> and and it's and it never stops like I, I still find myself very often talking to friends and saying i'm trying to shift from the reactionary path of opportunity to just say okay here's somebody offering me that i can like a, a worthwhile project that i can be involved in and get paid for to a much more long long term and strategic path of of um, intention and saying okay what is it yes. that i actually want to build in the mid mid and long term and and what are the the projects that serve that path as well as the short term need to to pay the rent and and i i still um like particularly right now like in in many ways um a friend of mine has recently called it drinking from the fire hose um like i oh, yeah. i things have changed for me in the last two years and and i i um have become more visible to people and therefore I get a lot more offers of collaboration. But, but that has a po points turned into me spending 30 hours a month on exploratory Skype and Zoom calls about potential projects or just giving advice to people because they told me about their project and it sounded cool and I wanted to not be impolite and, and help them. And, and in, in many ways for me, 2019 on a very personal level is, is understanding that there are so many jobs out there worth doing in the world and so many projects that are worth supporting that I cannot take it on my shoulders to do them all myself or support them all with my participation. Um, I can do whatever I do with spreading some of the information and, 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 and doing podcasts and, and, and creating videos and, and, and writing. Um, but if that all goes at the cost of me living on Mallorca in a community and working for the future of this island that is my home now and has been my home for the last eight years, then I'm beginning to risk um, my own personal integrity. And, mm. and so I've made a very strong decision that for me 2019 is a return to more bioregional work here on Mallorca. A, um, a, like, basically facing that messy multi-stakeholder process we talked about earlier um, that I kind of ran away from when I wrote my book and, and started working more internationally again and just saying, no, I, I need to do both. I need to, I need to build my little permaculture farm here on the island and I, I need to show my daughter how to tell the difference between the, the early sprouts of a broccoli and a, and, and a parsley and, and, and a turnip and a carrot, because that is deep wisdom that will serve her maybe more than some of the things she'll learn in school. And, um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's an ongoing journey to, to make sure that we, we serve ourselves and our families, because that is the basis of strength from which we then can work with our communities and, and the planet. And, um, watch this space. I'll, I'm sure you will try and I will try and, and we can every now and then compare notes and, and see how we're managing. Oh, it's marvelous. Yeah. Those are things that I struggle with on a daily basis as well. Now, Daniel, could you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you? I know you're pulling back a little bit. It's funny to ask that right after you say you're trying to focus a little more bioregionally. Um, but how can our listeners find some of your resources and get in touch with you? Well, one easy way is to, to just, um, 
I hesitate to use the word Google because there are other search engines, but to basically put into your search engine of choice um, my full name, Daniel Christian Wall, and Medium, which is this this aggregator blog, medium.com. And I've got probably about 310, 315 articles and pieces, probably a couple of thousand pages of writing on on that blog um, structured into... I really like that resource. That's a good one different headings. And then um, after years of boycotting Facebook, um, two years ago, I started to work on Facebook. And um, so there's my personal page, but there's also a page called Regenerative Cultures, just at Regenerative Cultures. And then I'm, I'm working in a kind of lighter way, sort of more inspirational quotes, beautiful images and memes that, that, that can, can make people's hearts sing. With, with a guy um, called Christopher Chase in Japan, and we've got a Facebook page called uh, Ecological Consciousness. So um, if you just need some sort of daily inspirations, that, that's also an, a nice one. And then I'm, I'm on Twitter, um, and I've, I've just recently uh, put up more things on my YouTube channel. And actually one of the ways that I'm hoping to do more work locally and, and still continue some kind of global meme seeding work is that I will step into your footsteps and other people who've, who've already started podcast series. And um, my intention for this year is to, to set up a, not, not a one-to-one interview, but actually a series of conversations with all these wonderful elders and all these wonderful pathfinders in what I would call the regeneration rising and explore with them some of the, the deeper questions that we've also explored today. Um, so watch this space and um, there'll be more of it starting March or April with um, conversations that, that I'm hoping to have with wonderful people. Oh, that is very exciting. I'll definitely keep a lookout for that. I can't wait to hear those conversations. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, and it's given me a lot of confidence that some of the topics and the things that you've struggled with are not things that uh, myself or my team are going through alone and that the complexity of our multi-stakeholder endeavor is, uh, is universally difficult. It definitely gives me a little, uh, a little confidence that we're not, the one that we're not going this on our own. So, Absolutely. Uh, Glad you're out there and glad that there's so many more. Every day there's more of us out there. There are. Things, things are shifting. Um, they need to shift fast now. But um, I, I have a real sense of hope. The main thing is that we need to keep always aware of the, uni- the, the greater unifying ground of, of not... Um, not, not going, focusing on our differences, but the things that connect yeah, us. Not, not going the part, like I think that the big shift of building a regenerative future for humanity is the shift from competitive advantage to collaborative advantage. The, the, mm-hmm. To understand that life is a um, non-zero-sum game, that you can actually create win-win-win solutions and um, that that's how life has evolved over 3.8 billion years. And if we learn how to design as life conditions conducive for life, then that's the future we will create. Well said. Well, again, thank you, Daniel. Uh, let's, let's definitely stay in touch. I would love to do a follow-up interview with, with you sometime in a future season and keep up the great work. I've gotten so much out of the resources and the writing and the publications that you've put out there. So thank you very much for that. Thank you again. It was a nice conversation. All right. Take care. 
Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at abundantedge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.